Hello, this is featuremist Gerd Leonhardt. These are my keynote speeches as podcasts. Uh, let's dive right in and say, well, it's really quite clear, you know, the, uh, the last 12 months, mind-boggling, the world has turned upside down. And I think it's safe to say that uh, normal, the definition of the word normal has been replaced by a whole bunch of new normals that have been fading in all over the place, where we're essentially putting our world back together. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird in so many ways. What that means is that, that we're redefining what normal is and what we want to do in the future and how we look at the world. And that has been really rebooted by COVID-19 in general. So in your world, that means, uh, I would say, perpetual VUCA. Um, and perpetual VUCA really means the things that we've come to see as an exception, as something that would happen every now and then, is just kind of the permanent phase now. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I think we have to embrace this. This is the new world that we're going into, the decade of chaos, of change. And that brings in many opportunities and many fundamental changes that we were due, way overdue to change for quite some time, including our approach to climate change, of course, and, and inequality and so on and so on. And all these things are now moving into a center stage. And that means a lot of changes uh, pretty much across the board. Also, uh, a, a huge amount of, of resets and discussions about reorganizing the world in a larger way. And so, I think we're heading into a deeply transformational decade. Uh, it's not just the pivoting and the shifting that goes on because of COVID, right? But beyond that, you know, we're changing the way that we look at things. We're changing the way that geopolitics work, the role of China, the, the role of Europe, the role of the US. We're changing the way that we look at, for example, sustainability. Uh, and that, that has been a very big topic pretty much all along uh, in different ways. I'll get back to that in a second. But really what it means for us as individuals is that we have to get much better at observing, at understanding, not just counting the facts, but also kind of feeding our way forward, developing our intuition. We have to question our assumptions, uh, assuming that the world is what it was. Uh, <laughs> this is one of those topics where it's really hard, of course, the more you do it, the more things are successful, the more you kind of tend to think it's all going to be the same, but it's not. We have to change our assumptions about the future. You know, years ago, uh, we thought that the car would have an engine and it would drive on gas. And, and now the car has kind of an engine, but it's mostly software and it will drive on electricity and we won't be driving it. Uh, so questioning our assumptions about what we do, what is possible, that's going to be essential, I think, in the future imagining also what it could look like, exploring the possibilities and, and as many people in my business uh, say, well, it's the approach of being more playful, about being more experimental. That's going to be crucial, of course, as teachers, you understand what I mean with exploring and playfulness. And lastly, is to adopt, to transform, to pivot, um, to shift into new possibilities and, and um, like myself, you know, and uh, I used to go on the road a hundred times and 2019, I traveled on 300 airplanes or so, sometimes four times a day here in Europe. And now I'm pivoting to talking to you online and I will go back to traveling, but it will not ever be like it was before. My business has been transformed and I think your business teaching uh, and English and languages is, is being transformed in a positive way. Uh, there are many challenges when we're being transformed, for example, that we have to expand our mindset, we have to get ready for it, we have to accept 
that things have changed, I won't be going back, and that can sometimes be quite hard, right? So basically the way I do this, I look at the future and say, well, really it's very important for me is to develop this future mindset, of course, and I think that's becoming important for most people. When we think about the future, it's really quite clear the future belongs to those that can hear it coming. David Bowie said that. Uh, and if we can hear it coming, we can take action, we can do things, we can, we can become different, we can uh, adapt. And this is the most important thing, is by just paying attention to what's happening. And of course, you know that from your students, uh, that from them, for them it's really important to understand the context of everything, not just the superficial information, but to hear what's coming um, and to be able to sort of predict and get a feeling for what's happening. I think COVID-19 was the great accelerator for us um, in so many ways, mostly about technology, you know, working in the cloud, working remotely, e-commerce, offer, uh, ordering food online, staying at home for staycations, telemedicine and so on. That's been like a warp drive, you know, we get sucked into the future like like hitting the, the warp drive button on Star Trek. <laughs> and, and this is basically, we've had more transformation uh, digital transformation in our societies across the world in the last 12 months and the previous 10 years. Uh, and everything has changed as a result and really what it means for us is that we have the much increased roles of technology, we have remote everything everywhere kind of being normal uh, and for teaching that has great impact of course and everything has become on demand. I call it XAAS, everything as a service. <laughs> it, as teaching is moving into the cloud as well. But I'll talk about that, why that's not going to be our only solution, of course. Uh, I'm, it's quite clear that we're going to work in the cloud and remotely uh, in the future a lot. But does the cloud and the screen create the same connection as it does with real people? I, I, I think personally we will not find sort of lasting relationships or happiness, as you may say in a wider sense, on a screen or in an app. Uh, it, it's a tool that we use to get there and it's a fantastic and a powerful tool but in the end uh, the human factor is still going to be between us and the chemistry that happens between people heart to heart so to speak, human to human, that's really quite irreplaceable. But the mix of the two is going to be the powerful part. So let's think about that for a second, which way we're going, you know, how is that going to impact teaching English when everything is in the cloud and available when technology becomes smart. And, and this is the important part that we have to understand. Technology is not intelligent like us. It has no emotional intelligence, no artistic, no kinesthetic, no lingual intelligence. It just, it's just numbers. Uh, you could say processing intelligence. Right? And, and when we go into the cloud and we use machines and AI, which I'll talk about later, yes, those are powerful tools, they're going to be here to stay. Uh, a great example is Samsung Neon, of course, from South Korea. You know, this is a virtual avatar that's made out to be like a human. This was, uh, I think, introduced last year at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, as, as a way of creating customer service agents that look real, and, and they very much do look real. I think maybe that's a future English teacher. I kind of doubt it, but I think at this point it has mostly pretty straightforward business applications. But clearly science fiction is becoming science fact. I mean, we're uh, moving to a Blade Runner type scenario very easily here because technology has indeed advanced such a crazy way. For example, here, this is Chow Eyes. And Chow Eyes is a Chinese application. 600 million users are using Chow Eyes as a companion 
to talk to her, parenthesis, about all kinds of things. Not only kids, no, pretty much across the board. There's concerts and discussions, and of course there's English classes, I think, as well. It's been so popular, it's owned by Microsoft, that they actually had to trim back its, its capabilities uh, because it was getting pretty scary as what it could do. Uh, check it out on YouTube, the video is pretty mind-boggling stuff. And then we have, of course, Facebook. Oculus Rift, what's called the Infinite Office, you know, using virtuality. Um, this is a demo, of course, but I've tried it many times and it, it's really quite interesting seeing the world in front of you like Tom Cruise and Minority Report really creates a, a different way of looking at reality. But, you know, right at this point, most people feel sick using this device, but, you know, in a few years, I think this could well be the new normal looking at virtuality teaching. Uh, whether we would like that or whether it's a good idea, I'll debate that with you later. But uh, maybe too much of a good thing can also be a very bad thing. Uh, Emilia, customer service agent application by IPsoft uh, for banks and so on that does the really trivial roles of shifting money around or orchestrating your wishes um, to the banking system and so on and so on. So it's basically an AI that does simple responses and creates scripts uh, as to uh, what you may want to be doing and so on. You've probably seen that stuff before, but that, that's going to be absolutely everywhere. It kind of shows the direction of intelligent systems right now. Uh, doing the really simple, the grunt work, you could say the commodity job, that's pretty much all it's going to do. So I prefer if we use a different approach to this whole discussions about artificial intelligence, I prefer a different name and I call it intelligent assistance, IA, rather than AI. And IA is really what we see all around us in Google Maps and applications in Siri, Cortana, and so on. And, and that application will be used for languages, as I'll show you. But keep in mind, this is not intelligence as our intelligence. It's very much a tool. It's very much on the assistant side, right? So it's very powerful and very important to understand. Here's a great example from Waverly Labs. Uh, it's an earpiece translation device, and I'll play some audio with that as well, and then I'll show you in a second what I think the next step would be on this. Are you ready, Sergio? ¿Estás listo, Sergio? Have you heard the news? ¿Has oído las noticias? The growth figures are looking very well this month. Las cifras de crecimiento se ven muy bien este mes. Yeah, I think that's really interesting when you think about this. You know, is this device truly going to happen and it is going to replace translation? Is it going to prevent our kids and ourselves from learning languages? I mean, if you can just speak and it comes out in an earpiece, translated in, in a decent way, is that good enough? Well, I think clearly it's good enough for ordering pizza uh, or for having a simple conversation. But is it good enough for interpersonal contact? Is the intermediation of a device like this uh, enough? Well, I think there's some applications, yes, where easily it may be, like calling a call center and talking to a device like this in 40 languages, easy enough. But going deeper, really expressing yourself, anything beyond the routine, I, I kind of doubt it. You know, are we going to have these devices, automatic ear sets at the United Nations delegations when they talk about complicated topics? I think that's some time off, you know, 20 years, 30 years. Maybe in the future we can see that improving vastly. Is it going to take away your job and teaching people how to speak English? I doubt it. 
I think this is a great add-on. It's kind of like using virtual reality to find data, but you still have to make sense out of it. Um, I think in the long run, we're looking at a world to where that is going to intermediate many, many situations, including, of course, as it already has, you know, dating and other things like this. But yeah, it's, it's a tool. It's something we're going to see. If we look at statistics, it's quite clear. Many people like this idea of an intelligent digital device. Here you see the research. This is actually almost two years old, so numbers are much, much higher now. People intend to buy those devices, intelligent digital assistants, in the US, Brazil, China, of course, Asia is a leader, and that's pretty much across the board, Japan, and Korea, and many others, for intelligent devices to help us manage our reality. And yeah, well, hopefully it will still be our reality. And if you're looking at the data here, it's also quite clear, yeah, images are already working pretty well with AI, you know, understanding what an image is. And, and now it's about language processing, which is really quite tough, right? natural language processing, so parsing, translation, and so on. That is not trivial, but it's improving very, very quickly. And that means machines can understand what we're saying, they can respond to us. But here's the thing, and ultimately, humans are not just data. We read between the lines. We try to say something that we don't mean, or we mean something that we don't say, or we don't say anything, which still means something. <laughs> Life isn't digital. Right? And language being a human thing, you know, it's very much about who we are. It's messy. And teaching is messy. I know that's been one of the, uh, of the discussions that you've been having internally about what that entails in the future. But it's really quite clear when we put it all together, it's, yeah, we have to go beyond technology to make this work. And it'll be a great asset to speak the language rather than using a translation device, regardless of what time frame you're talking about, at least for the next 20, 30 years. I think that a safe assumption to make that humans are not just data. But clearly this is our number one opportunity and challenge. The convergence of humans and machines, technology and humanity. Uh, and this is of course my, my key topic, but I really believe that we can have benefit from uh, bringing more technology in our lives and solving big problems and making things possible. But at a certain point, we're going to also have to say, well, maybe this is too much technology. Maybe it's taken something out that we should keep. Maybe it's dehumanizing. Maybe it's failing its purpose. Maybe it's a reductionism. And this is important for you as teachers is to figure out how do I use technology and how do I not use it? And what is the appropriate time and the appropriate context for using it? Uh, is it okay for a 10-year-old to learn vocabulary using the iPad or a robot for that matter? But a 13-year-old to discuss the state of the world, that's probably not, uh, it's better not being left to the AI or the robot, but a real person. So this is a real challenge as we're moving down these game changes, as I called them in my last book, Technology versus Humanity, which by the way is out, I think, in Korean as well. Uh, but the game changes are now shaping up much quicker than we thought, you know, whether they're about the Internet of Things or 3D printing or voice control or virtual reality. And it's kind of like we're, we're going into this future, we thought, okay, it's a stepwise thing, it's going to go gradually. But no, we're stepping on the gas pedal in a huge way. And our, the timing has just been completely boosted by COVID as well, because technology has taken the lead, right? It's like warp drive into the future. Our world is going to change more in the next 10 years than in the previous 100 years. And this is no overstatement. If you look at the next 10 years, 
We want to have 10 billion people on the internet, 5G, 6G, 10G networks, cheap electronic devices, nanotechnologies, connecting our brain to the internet with, with brain computer interface. The story goes on. I could list like the next half hour. I won't. <laughs> but it's really quite clear to me as a human and also as a, as, a, as a teacher that I was for a long time, from music of course, the more we'll connect with technology and use technology, the more we'll cherish being human and having that human-to-human -human connection where, where I think we're already realizing, for example, in social media that these connections are interesting and they're useful, but many of them don't feel real and they can be manipulative and they cannot be deep enough and, and things like that. So when we look at the future and all these things coming together, this is the key question. How do we keep it from not being human, from dehumanizing us? Right? And that question is really quite simple when we look at the context context of everything we're doing, we're heading into a world of what I call the mega shifts. And uh, you can download this, by the way, also in Korean, many other languages, uh, wherever you may be in the world. Uh, the megashifts.digital, that's the domain right here in the lower corner, uh, where you can download that chapter for free. But it's essentially about this, right? Machines are getting smart. They're being cognified. Uh, people are calling that you know, cognified computing, which I think is a bit of a stretch, but, you know, machines are no longer stupid. Let's put it that way. They can do deep learning, machine learning, understanding. Uh, we can virtualize processes rather than having them in real time, in real life. We can put them online like we have been doing for the last uh, year or even longer, of course, with virtual conferences and so on. But virtualization goes on in industrial complexes, in, in manufacturing, and it goes, of course, with robots, and which are very widespread in many countries now, becoming very cheap. Uh, the biggest industrial robot is roughly about $14,000 now uh, to start with, uh, the, the cheapest one that you can buy for, for using industry. And augmentation, virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, and this is of course a new Apple project that's coming up. Mind-boggling changes when we put this all together, the mega shifts, that is a, will have such impact on our world, like automating things. Of course, you can see that everywhere already. But I think we should automate what we can, if it's routine and if it's simple, yes. We should not automate what makes a big difference to us. We should not automate relationships. So obviously, I think really for us, it means we have to understand, we have to embrace, and in a certain way, we have to transcend these shifts. You know, we have to leave them behind us to, to use them as tools and not get too carried away by them becoming sort of their own sense-making. So for us, really important is to understand the mega shifts, to understand what's happening. Here's a great example of the Waymo self-driving car, Palo Alto, California. Interesting to note, of course, we have not seen that anywhere else. Uh, and it's, it's currently being revamped, I think, for the public use. But clearly, we're going to see that in all major cities. If it's not going to be about real driving, like making decisions, anything beyond routine, going around the block from the train station to the hotel, yeah, we're going to see those things everywhere. But th that's not really real, you know, driving in the sense of like a, a human driver who's able to, to immediately uh, take action and, and change things in, in a different way that does include unplanned and also ethical decisions. <laughs> so we should not mistake a clear view for a short distance. Yes, we will have self-driving cars and we already have them. And you can try them on the freeway in Los Angeles and anywhere in the world. But to drive like a human, 
Yeah, that's still quite a distance, you know, level 5 autonomous driving. And why do we need level 5? It's perfectly okay to have level 3 or 4. It gives you a good example of what technology does. You know, sometimes it takes longer for technology to actually be in effect, but then when it happens, it's much bigger. And I think we're going to see the same thing here. But great example for the promise of technology and then the reality is that we're still in other levels. Uh, trying to get to, to this place. Right? For example, uh, some of the minority report type scenarios of downloading information and, and of course downloading languages. Yeah, that is a, maybe a clear view for some people, uh, but it's a long way away, if ever, uh, um, the concept of learning like this, because learning doesn't work that way for humans, and of course all of you know that. Uh, the simple version of what we can see that already happening in technology is abbreviated versions of intelligence like the self-parking car from Tesla. Uh, and that's very useful, but self-parking, yeah, okay, that's a tiny fragment of uh, intelligence that we're going to see in the future. So, bottom line is the moral of edge paradox is still very much active. And that paradox is whatever is easy for a human is hard for a computer and vice versa. And that means that things that are really easy for us to do, like immediately understand something that is being said, even if it's not being said uh, verbally, right? uh, from body language, from understanding, from reading between the lines, you know, from emotional intelligence, we can instantly do that. For a computer, very difficult. I think it's going to be that way for at least 20, 30 years uh, when we think about what computers can do, what we do. And I, I think this is, of course, the way forward for teaching, you know, to teach the things that are hard for computers not the things that are easy for computers. We're not going to compete with computers, not even in the short run. We're, uh, we're heading into a future where uh, technology is becoming intelligent in some ways, but of course not really in this way that we know from Hollywood. It's, yeah, if we look at what, how they define intelligence and, and AI, the best one is really by, by Demis Hassabis, the uh, co-founder of DeepMind in London, now owned by Google. He says, AI is computers that turn information and data into knowledge. And that should give you pause to think, right? If, you, if computers have knowledge, what do we have? And what kind of knowledge does a computer have? Well, it's binary, right? Zero, one, zero, one. If this and that, a computer can do that very easily. It can memorize Wikipedia. It can read, read all the books about philosophy. But having read all the books does not make you a philosopher. Uh, and, and this is something that we have to keep in mind, really, what's happening here is uh, there's really three areas happening in, in AI that are most important as far as your jobs are concerned. Machine learning and deep learning. So machine learning is the ability of machines, computers, to learn and find insights without programming. That is important. So by observing, yeah, by learning, that's why it's called machine learning. And of course, deep learning is the next step. And that is really the, the biggest, most important discipline right now as part of AI, is to imitate the working of the human brain and to create patterns. Putting those things together is what we see. And I think really we have to fade out what we know about uh, artificial intelligence from the movies and, and from, uh, from television, from media and from Black Mirror and, and Upload and so on. It's really a toolbox. Look at AI as a toolbox for yourself. It's, it's not going to replace humans for quite some time because it really isn't humanly intelligent for now. That would be called super intelligence and that may be an option in 30 years. But for the time being, you know, this is basically a toolbox that we're going to use. Great example for the toolbox is Atari, um, the Atari breakout game. 
this was 2015, where the AI was charged with playing Atari Breakout, which you may know, I'll show you in a second. But basically the AI was, the, the, robot, the robot, the machine was not given any details on the rules of the game, just the mission to win. To win. And of course what it did, it played very clumsily the first 10 minutes. As you can see, trying to get through the wall is the, is the goal, of course, right? if you ever played the game, very simple computer game. And the machine is not doing so well, we're just trying to figure out how to play the game to begin with. But then after a very short time, it's, been, it's become quite an expert because it's gone through all the moves, right? Every possible move. It's very mathematical, like, a bit like chess, you could say. All of the options. It's become a really good player. But here's what happens in the end, right? 240 minutes of training, uh, the AI, the computer realizes uh, that all it has to do is find a way around the back because when it finds a way around the back, it can basically ping-pong the ball and destroy all the bricks by going the other way, rather than going the obvious way, as you can see right here. So it's figured out a, a way forward. It's learned things. Right? And this is really what machines can do now. But it's all about patterns. Right? And this will impact the future of work and, and what it means, because basically it means that computers, machines will eventually handle all of our routines. Simple driving, maybe flying an airplane, you know, doing our taxes, running our receipts, things like that. Anything that's not different in the sense of human judgment. And really what we have to learn is understand is that anything that can be digitized or virtualized or, or automated will be, right? That, that is the law of digital Darwinism, the end of routine. Uh, and to me, the end of routine is, is, is good news because I don't really want to do the routine. I want to move up the food chain and get better at the things that are not routine. And, and this is a question that everybody has to ask themselves. How much of our work is routine? How much of your work as a teacher is routine? Because a lot of those things will be done by intelligent systems, by voice control, by Alexa, by, yeah, but there's so much more room on top of the routine. And, and it is happening pretty much across the board. It's not just teaching. Uh, all professional services are lawyers and accountants. You know, you can use software for accounting that is intelligent. So will our office look like this in the future? Well, uh, kind of in many ways it may, because you know, we are increasingly uh, outsourcing the, the routine work to machines here from The Economist and the World Economic Forum. Um, in many ways, that has been a discussion about what happens here for quite some time. But now we have the next level, right, which is basically the realization that the future of work is non-routine. Right? Whether it's non-routine cognitive or non-routine uh, manual work, which also increases. And I think as teachers, you qualify very well, of course, in this curve of, of uh, importance by non-routine cognitive work. And this is really where everything goes, I think, in the long run. If you're looking at the spectrum of what's going to be important for work, I'm going to zoom in a little bit more to show you better what it looks like. Right? But language is going to be an important ingredient in all of those pieces. Uh, language is going to make us be better leaders, uh, to communicate, of course, uh, critical thinking, and, and do all of those things that are on the top part of this quadrant. You know. uh, and so that's a really important function to see uh, because it's a human function. It's not a function of computing. So anything that can be digitized or automated or virtualized or so will be. 
And that's something we have to realize that that is something that computing does. And it's a gift, but it's also a challenge. You know, if your job is 100% routine, then you will not have a job. Maybe, I don't know, lowest level call center or, you know, working on fact checking and things like that. But here's the flip side of this. Anything that cannot be digitized or automated becomes much more valuable. And this is where you are. Huh? This is where language comes in. This is where teaching comes in. Right? Because teaching and language and understanding context and humanity is about things like emotions, creativity, imagination, consciousness, mystery, uh, uh, ethics, empathy. Right? Einstein once said, imagination is more important than knowledge. And well, yeah, that's an interesting fact. right? We, we do have to know a lot of things to speak a language, but we have to use imagination to make it work, and this is the human factor. Clearly, this is where we are going, uh, despite of all the cool stuff that technology is inventing. Like, this is a, an, an app called GPT-3. It's an artificial intelligence application, and you can type anything you want to make it do stuff that used to be done by humans, like programming, right? So here you can say you want an app that is a, has a nav bar with a camera icon and the, you know, basically a programming application. And uh, then the artificial intelligence will make that app for you. Um, and that's what humans used to do. But the result of this can be used as input for human work, right? And GPT-3 now is widely talked about in what it can do and what it should be doing. And, and it's still very much a machine-based application. But imagine what kind of shortcuts we can take here for programming, but also, of course, for things like call centers or e-commerce and, and so on. So the end of routine is not the end of human work. It is just moving up the food chain into a new universe where we use the routine that's done by machines. And, and I think this will be very important for language training. So what if machines do the routine? We are way beyond the routine. What really matters in life is not routine. It's not data. It's empathy, it's relationships, it's experiences. And machines can do all that stuff very well. As my colleague Luciano Faridi says from Oxford Digital Ethics, he says, algorithms outperform humans when it's not about understanding emotional states and tensions. And guess what, you know, you guessed correctly with language, everything in language is about emotions, intentions, understanding, interpretations, right? So let's embrace technology for all that simple stuff, but, you know, upgrade what we do, move into a new direction so we don't end up in a world where technology is calling the shots like this little cartoon uh, of uh, Kindle of the um, of the Amazon Echo and the Alexa application. So we're moving into the future where clearly automated for the people. Uh, automation is going to be everything replacing many jobs like food preparation, construction, cleaning, driving, you know, pretty high percentage. But surprise, of course, no, maybe no surprise, but you're, you're right here at the bottom of the scale, right? Automation risk for teaching is very low. And, and this should not really make, make you placent and, and com complacent when you're thinking about how to react, but clearly this is also good news, you know, that we're not in the same position as, as uh, people who are clearly going to be dis displaced, like driving agricultural labor, labor, garment manufacturing and so on. This is our future as machines become more intelligent. They take over most of the routines and, and so the human-only work, the human-only task, the attributes become invaluable. 
Uh, and again, you know, this is okay. We're saying that's quite nice, but what does it mean for us? Well, we're going to have to move up the food chain. Uh, we're going to have to upskill and get better and provide more experiences and, and be more different and, and look at the future where automation, as we can see it right here, is a fact of life. Right? If you work like a robot, the robots will take your job. If you learn like a robot, you'll never have a job to begin with. You teach like a robot, you teach people never to have a job. Uh, and I think that is quite clear as we're looking at our potential here is to rise above that. You know? This is, of course, a movie clip from Charlie Chaplin, 50 years old, if not I'm 70 years old, I think. <laughs> Going back to Amelia and the applications that are currently being used for customer service that pretend to be kind of human. Well, that is amazing, but as Albert Hubbard said in 1905 about automation, one machine can do the work of 50 ordinary men, women, of course. No machine can do the work of one extraordinary man or women. So, as teachers, we have to become extraordinary. That's a tall order, I know. But many of you already are. Uh, in what we have learned and, and, and the experience that we've gained in the past, and, and this is really our path to the future, offering extraordinary experiences, services, moving beyond providing simple routines. Uh, if you're looking at, at what has been written about happiness and, and, and what humans like, uh, there is uh, PERMA, uh, which is a definition of happiness, by Daniel Kahneman, famous uh, psychologist, who writes there's those five things that we try to get across as humans, positivity, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And, and that's really what we're doing when we're teaching things, right? We're moving in that direction. And, and you know, the stats, again, are completely obvious on this as we're moving into the world where uh, everything that's routine is replaced by machines, construction, manufacturing, everything that's not, and education clearly is up here, right? Everything that's not, it's becoming much more powerful. And so we're heading into a future where our ultimate job, not just in teaching, is to be human. But the ultimate teaching job is to be human and to teach it in a human way and to create human values by teaching. And that's not new, but this is becoming a realization where we think, okay, really it's about what I call the androrhythms, the human things, that are hard to express sometimes and that are not obvious to people and that, that we need to zero in on consciousness, values, mystery, compassion. And at the same time, we're still going to have algorithms and technologies supporting how we teach. Right? Uh, technology is not what we seek, it's how we seek, how we find things, you know, how we go about things. And they're going to be constantly intertwining, they're going to constantly uh, go back and forth in meaningfulness, and we have to decide what is enough of technology. That is going to be the crucial point in our own life, but otherwise as well. So let me finalize and say, okay, so what does it all mean? Let's take some action and think about uh, what does it mean for ESL and for teaching and, and for your life in general. So first, uh, consider when you use technology that every extension of what we, what we supplant our lives with, whether it's automation, AI, virtual reality, it's also kind of amputating what we used to do ourselves before. Like the mobile phone has obviously become very dominant in our lives. Marshall McLuhan said this. So at a certain point we should think about maybe we don't want to get rid of this. Maybe we do want to keep that contact. Maybe we do want to keep it more inefficient, but more human. Very important point uh, to say, well, at a certain point, I think that's enough of a good thing. And uh, especially when you're living in a highly 
uh, technical, technological society like South Korea or Japan, where that has become really everything. Uh, and of course, in the U.S., you know, where we're looking at technology becoming the the kingmaker for so many people, we have to think about what is the right volume of this. You know, where do we stop and how do we regulate and control technology? For our own lives, it's really about this: is this handshake between technology and us. You know, we have to balance technology and humanity in our in our lives and also in our in our teaching. We have to resist this kind of reductionism by saying, "Well, all you have to do is download this," and no, you're not. Happiness is not an app. Understanding language, understanding life is not something you can buy on the app store. Uh, it's something that we create. It's a character skills and, and language is very much related to character. Even if we have an app that can translate flawlessly. Because think about this, what really matters to humans you know, as we go in this highly technological world that is going to have uh, what already has, of course, <laughs> fake beings like electronic dogs, you know, quite popular in Japan, I hear. Uh, but really what's important to us? What is important to us? Well, experiences, engagement, relationships. And this is what makes a good teacher, to provide an experience, to create engagement with the subject matter, to create relationships between each other. Relationships with things that are much more complicated than analyzing them and, and, and having, uh, having a an algorithm look at how many times it turns up or, or it does not turn up. Right? So clearly this is going to be crucial for us is to get rid of this thinking of that everything is about efficiency. It's not. Efficiency is great for the CFO. Uh, efficiency is uh, really a job for robots. And we should not think about technology as being about efficiency. This is about creating something different with technology. And that's what we should pursue when we use technology, is to create something totally new. Think about all the things that were created totally new in the COVID crisis, you know, the possibility of using online uh, situations. For example, now I found a website the other day that, that has asked me to contribute that's, that's working on people that are retired to put them back into the workforce using remote technology. Right? Something completely new that is only possible because we have the tech now. And of course, we need to focus on what 1998 uh, uh, Pine and Gilmore already talked about, which is the experience economy. And again, this is not new, but now it's possible. We need to move beyond providing services or goods or commodity. If you're a commodity, you will not survive this future. Right? You have to move beyond services into experiencing, staging experiences, whether it's in person or online, and that is something that you need to practice. You know, I had to learn that myself over the last couple of years going virtual. Transforming your students, transforming the occupation, transforming yourself, moving beyond this idea of providing just something that is again and again happening, but that it has become a real experience. Anything that's a real experience will explode in value. I mean, if you take a look, for example, at, at simple web services, well, not simple, but latest ones like Airbnb, right? they actually have a product called Experiences. And whatever bad things you can say about Airbnb as a consequence, this is a brilliant idea, right? creating something that you can sell as an experience. Uh, also very important when you talk to your students and when you look at your own future is to nurture your future mindset. So. I ask of you 45, 50, 60 minutes a day maybe, uh, spending time in the future with, with what is not already here. Looking at what's happening, reading books, looking at podcasts, listening to podcasts, looking at videos, 
don't watch Hollywood movies on Netflix. You know, look at what's happening around you. Try to get a read and, and hear the future, right? Hear it coming, see it coming. That's going to make you safe for the future as a human to create the future mindset. As a teacher, clearly the more of that you have, the more interesting you'll be for your students. <laughs> so basically now it's all post-COVID, beyond COVID, it's about resilience. Right? It's no longer just about functioning. It's no longer just about getting the job done. It's about EQ, uh, resilience, creativity. It's about coming up with new solutions. And all of us can do this. It's just a question of practice. Yeah? It's something where we may have, some of us have gotten more laid back and basically repeating things. And now we have to reinvent. Right? We have to think about how we're going to respond to this constant VUCA that I mentioned in the very beginning. Well, here's the response. Velocity, speed, unorthodoxy, new ideas, co-creation, right? awesomeness. As you go into the next couple of days of your conference, think about what that means for your job to be awesome, right? to co-create with others, a very, very key point, uh, to be unorthodox. Think Richard Branson for business, right? New ideas, new concepts, and speed. That's, that's of the essence, right? So when we go forward, this is going to be important for us and of course for our students or your students, agility, resilience, you know, going from efficiency to creativity. That's really where we had it in this decade. Very important we keep that in mind for teaching. And the final point is, as technology is going to be absolutely everywhere, we should embrace technology and use technology to the largest extent that we can to serve us as a tool. Right? Embrace technology, but don't become it. That's my final message. This is Gerd Leonhard, Futurist. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out my videos at gerdtube.com on YouTube.